welcome to episode 1709 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing all right. Shall we take a one-day break from foreign substances? <laughs> Can we talk about other things? Is that possible? <laughs> I, you know, I think that baseball is a beautiful and complicated game that continues to thrill and surprise me every day. So mm-hmm. I imagine that we can can manage it. Yep. It might take a little a little work, but I think we can try. I imagine it may come up again next week, just possibly. But (laughs) for today, at least, let's do an old school episode. Before we used to talk about foreign substances every day, we will do some emails, we'll do a stat blast, we'll meet some major leaguers, we'll play all the hits. So just to start, a couple of follow-ups to things we talked about last week and readers wrote in to share interesting anecdotes. So One thing we talked about multiple times was the idea of players making predictions, predicting walk-offs, predicting successes, and we kind of came to the conclusion, or at least the suspicion, that a big part of this is that players are constantly predicting these things and that we only hear about them when they actually happen, which skews the perception of how prescient players are. So we got an email from Clay who writes, have been listening to your episodes about players making predictions and wanted to share an example that represents one of the most historic moments in Twins history while being acknowledged by many as yet another empty prediction. Dick Bremer, Twins broadcaster, in his book Game Used, which came out last year, recounts Kirby Puckett's speech in the locker room before Game 6 of the 1991 World Series, while many fans recall what has been known as an amazing prediction of his heroics in Game 6. Most don't realize that Puckett made these types of predictions all the time, and in fact it was a running joke in the clubhouse. While I love to romanticize the history of baseball and especially a rare Twins playoff victory, it seems to me that this locker room prediction was nothing more than an empty promise. So he sent us a picture from Bremer's book, and it says the Twins were on the brink of elimination. They had let a 2-0 lead in the series slip through their fingers, and now the Braves could win the World Series if they could find a way to win one of two at the Metrodome. According to Twins lore, Kirby Puckett walked into the clubhouse before Game 6 and loudly proclaimed that he was driving the bus that night and everybody had better get on board. He then went out and did what he promised. Of course, he hit the game-winning homer and he had the legendary catch. In reality, Puckett did that on a regular basis, the prediction, (laughs) that is. Whether it was a World Series game or a relatively insignificant game in May, it became a bit of an amusing cliche in the Twins clubhouse. At one point, Randy Bush, who seldom started, walked in with the same boisterous proclamation and everyone busted out laughing. So there's some other stories and corroborations about this and the idea that this was kind of a a regular thing for Puckett. When he retold the story years later, and this is in a Tim Kirchin piece, Puckett said, I went to the clubhouse and I gathered everyone up. I said, everybody together, we're going to have a short meeting. Everybody comes in and I said, guys, I just have one announcement to make. You guys should jump on my back tonight. I'm going to carry us. And other twins and former teammates have said that, yeah, this was kind of a a Puckett thing to do, that he did this kind of all the time. And there's a a story from 2009 that I was just reading that does make it seem as if he made a more specific prediction later in the game. So this is from the Pioneer Press. It says, it turns out Kirby Puckett actually did call his famed homer in the 1991 World Series for the Twins. 
Terry Crowley in town this week as hitting coach of the Baltimore Orioles was a twinge coach from 1991 to 98. He has a special memory, Game 6 of the 1991 World Series, when Puckett's famous 11th inning walk-off home run advanced the Twins to Game 7, which they won, nicknamed Crow. Crowley was among the first people Puckett eagerly embraced on the field after the historic clout to left field. There was a reason, and most people were not aware. On some replays of the tape, if the crowd noise is diminished, Crowley said, you can hear Puckett tell me, I told you so, Crow. Just before Puckett went to bat against Charlie Liebrandt, he told Crowley he was about to end the game with a home run. Puckett told me, Crow, if they leave Liebrandt in there, this game is over. That's the God's honest truth. That's fact. And that happened. If you listen to the tape, he gives me a hug and says, Crow, I told you. And I said, yeah, you did. And then the story goes on to say that Puckett's pal and teammate Kent Herbeck said Wednesday he couldn't recall Puckett specifically forecasting the homer, but he also said it wouldn't surprise him. You know, Puck, how he liked to talk, Herbeck said. He was always saying, jump on. I'm driving the bus. He talked like that all the time, but he had the guts to back it up. So great game, (laughs) legendary game, but maybe not quite as impressive that he predicted it as it might seem. It seems like more of a catchphrase than a prediction, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I know that the verbiage varied a little bit, you know, maybe game to game, but yeah, it seems more like a like a catchphrase than it is necessarily a prediction. Yeah. I guess if he specifically predicted a homer off Lee right. Brandt, that was more of a prediction, but right. maybe he did that all the time too. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hit a home run every time. <laughs> anyway, uh. that's a little backup for our theory there. And then we got one more email from Brent, which was in response to our discussion on episode 1705 about teams calling or delaying games. And we answered a question about whether teams could do some gamesmanship by delaying, postponing games because teams before the game starts have the authority to call a game on account of weather. And the question was about, well, if you wanted seven inning games, if that was more advantageous to you because of your pitching staff, then maybe you could kind of game the system to work that out. And we talked about whether that would actually be advantageous, but I was sure that we would get someone telling us an example of a time that something like this had actually happened because it certainly seems plausible. And Brent says... Every Braves fan is familiar with the times the Nationals intentionally delayed a game, and this was actually pretty recent. This was just a few years ago, July 2017, and the Nationals had a a situation where they delayed a game where it wasn't raining and seemingly the weather was fine. So I'm reading from a story in the Chicago Tribune here. The Nationals have tried more than once now to apologize for what happened Thursday night when fans were given little information about why a dry, tarp-free baseball field could not accommodate baseball, about whether those circumstances might change, and about what they should do if they had already invested hundreds of dollars into food, tickets, and parking but could not stay. The immediate answer was nothing. Many fans spent the night being angry, extremely angry, and if they wanted a public voice for their frustrations, they could look inside the Braves' television broadcast booth where Chip Carey and Joe Simpson repeatedly filleted the Nationals for their handling of the situation. This is a travesty. This really is, Simpson said about an hour into the delay when the field was dry and the tarp still ensconced in its wrapper. I hope MLB looks into this because this is a blatant abuse of gamesmanship by the Nationals, in my opinion. 
As you see, there's no tarp on the field. There's the tarp. It's still got its cover on it. It's not even unrolled in anticipation of any rain that, as you said, is expected to get here not until 9 o'clock if it gets here. We could have already played five or six innings by the time the rain might get here. This is all about the Nationals fearing they might start the game and lose Gio Gonzalez and then have the game started later and then have to go to their bullpen, which we all know is the worst in baseball. This is a horrible attempt by the Nationals to manipulate this. And, of course, uh, maybe some bias there on the part of Braves broadcasters, but that was a a theory among angry fans of both teams. The Trib said that the relief pitching bereft Nats were trying to avoid burning Gonzalez for three innings and then turning the game over to the guys beyond right field. If that was their motivation, it sort of worked out. Gonzalez went six innings and sort of didn't. Four relievers pitched, allowing five hits and two runs, and the Nets lost anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a real-life possible example. And yeah. evidently, even Bryce Harper was upset about this and said in some video on social media that it shouldn't have happened and that it was absolutely brutal. So I don't know whether that argues against the theory. But anyway, there's a pretty recent possible precedent. Just play baseball when you have the opportunity to play baseball. Mm-hmm. And don't don't mess about with it's it's really just the worst thing you can do to your fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think that we we get spoiled because if we want to go to a game for work purposes, we can just do that for work purposes. Like going to baseball can be work. And mm-hmm. like I am proximate to a pretty bad baseball team right now. And so sometimes it's easy to just go for cheap when you don't want to work. But a lot of people don't. You know, they might get to go to one game a year and mm-hmm. that's it. And it's expensive and it requires planning and you got to make snacks for your kids and like figure out how you're going to distract them when they get bored in the middle of the innings. And you should, you know, you should be respectful of all that time and effort that people expend to come see, see the product. So, you mm-hmm. know, don't, don't, don't mess about. And if you do, I hope you lose on the back end every time. So <laughs> yeah. I just want to think about that. All right, let's get to some emails. I know I said that we weren't going to talk about sticky stuff today, but we did get a bunch of emails about it. I'll just pick one. (laughs) One, just because it's a a weird, effectively wild hypothetical that is related to sticky stuff. So Sean says, from what I understand, any pitcher caught using a foreign substance will be suspended 10 games with pay and their team cannot replace them on the active roster. Along with this announcement has come the assumption that pitchers will comply. My question is, why don't pitchers resist? Unless I miss something, pitchers will likely miss only one start as rotations can be adjusted to avoid missing two. Pitchers will still be paid while under suspension, so the only true punishment is teams will have to go without a full active roster for 10 games. That, my friends, is a management problem, not labor's problem. The way I see it, every pitcher in the league should stand united and keep on pitching as they have been, especially seeing as Tyler Glass now has become the first test case that complying with the rule could be detrimental to pitchers' health. What is baseball going to do? Suspend every single pitcher? Force teams to use position players on the mound for 10-game stretches until pitchers return and start the process all over again? There's no way. MLB picked this fight, and the players can absolutely win it if they so choose. It wouldn't take many suspensions before the cracks in this new legislation would begin to show. In less than a week, it would become a crisis, and MLB would have no choice but to back down or make revisions to the rules. Having already made one unnecessary scene, is the league really going to be motivated to make this an even bigger story during its brief window when it doesn't have to compete with the NBA, NHL, or NFL for headlines? 
Actually, there are plenty of NBA headlines these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the more I think about it, the less reason I see for pitchers to comply. MLB could have done this quietly over the winter and allowed pitchers to make necessary adjustments leading up to the season and into spring training, but it didn't. For pitchers to simply give in would completely let MLB off the hook for the negative attention this has brought to the sport. To every pitcher, I say, choose chaos. What say you, Ben and Meg? And just one thing I will say is something that Jeff Passan wrote in his column this week, which makes this sound slightly, slightly less far-fetched. Jeff wrote, players aggrieved by midseason enforcement are engaging in amusing what-ifs with teammates. Like, what if, in protest, every pitcher on a team went to the mound with a giant splotch of pine tar in his hand and got ejected one by one? Would that be the sort of statement that simultaneously embarrasses baseball, illustrates how farcical they believe the rules to be, and brings them to the table for a discussion? It's cathartic, and it's amusing, and it's probably rhetorical. Probably. So that lends some credence to the idea that it's not just Sean who has had this idea cross his mind. I think that you you would have a collective action problem. It would be one thing to be able to get everyone on your team to do that. But you'd also have to get everyone on the other team to do that, right? You'd have to you'd have to collaborate with your opposing players because I think that the question underestimates the degree to which players want to do two things i think that they want to win first of all which is why they're using spider attack in the first place Mm -hmm. and so the idea of sacrificing a win in order to stage a protest that probably doesn't actually result in the kind of change that they're anticipating or wanting seems unlikely to me but also like they're teammates you know they work with Mm -hmm. people and we like it when our coworkers like us yeah (laughs) You know, and so I think that part of what this rule presupposes is that Major League Baseball players are not universally, I'm going to do a swear, are not universally assholes. And so they would like it if their teammates who are there to win, whether they are other pitchers who may or may not themselves be using a foreign substance or position players, will be put in a position to best win. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that as if them staging a protest would be like a, a moral failing on their part. I think that there might be something striking about that. Given the current sort of posture that the league has taken toward players when it comes to both this issue and many other issues, I don't know that the reaction the league would have would be a conciliatory one so much as a defiant one. Yeah. And so maybe you would do this and maybe it would work, but I think you'd have to be really sure. And in the meantime, you're doing a slightly less objectionable version of like microwaving fish at work, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Right. And again, like we we spent a bunch of time on our last episode talking about the the limitations that we saw and the issues that we saw with the way that the league decided to go about enforcement. And I don't need to reiterate or relitigate any of that. And I don't mean to say that I think that the way that they're doing this is like perfect or anything like that, but I think that generally they are going to want to attempt to win baseball games. And so they will do that even if the way they go about it could be potentially harmful to them from an injury perspective or or a performance perspective. And I think that what is likely to happen, what's likely to happen is not a big protest, but someone trying to be sneaky. Like the way that they will try to circumvent this and sort of have their cake and eat it too, have their spider tack and you wouldn't want to eat it. It's probably very bad for your teeth. Yes. Is that they will just attempt to fool the umpires. They will just try to do it anyway. And some of them 
will succeed and some of them will fail and get ejected and get suspended. But mm-hmm. the way that the league is going about implementing this, both in terms of the inability of teams to replace the pitcher on the roster and the punishments that are present for other members of the organization, should they either facilitate the use of foreign substances or fail to sort of curtail it sufficiently, suggests to me that they they are trying to simultaneously make this a individual and collective effort and problem for organizations. And so I think that like you might get a nasty gram not only from your teammates, but like from other from front office folks being like, so you have done this and now I am facing consequences from the league yeah. office. So that yeah. all taken together makes me think that they will not do it. But I have been wrong before. <laughs> yeah, I think for multiple reasons this won't happen. I think for one thing, it would be pretty impossible to get every pitcher on board. Some pitchers are okay with this. Like some pitchers don't mind the ban. They may prefer a slightly less comprehensive ban, but I think some pitchers are okay with it. And especially some pitchers who have not been using foreign substances, if there are any, or at least that have been using less potent foreign substances are probably pretty happy now that the pressure won't be on them, that maybe relative to other pitchers, they will perform better now. So you wouldn't even get universal support among pitchers for this. And then hitters would be pissed, I think, because most hitters are probably happy with this in the broad strokes, at least. So you'd really get a a big pitcher versus batter civil war in every clubhouse. I know there are clicks already, but it would get pretty heated. And players want to win, as you said, and this would hurt your chances of winning unless you could really count on every single other team to do it. I think it it would be a tough sell. Also, there'd be a huge public backlash. I mean, fans, whatever sympathy that fans have for pitchers now, which there are certainly some fans already in the tough, they were cheating, so whatever happens to them now, they deserve camp. But I think if this happened, if pitchers just came out and said, we are not going to play because we're not allowed to cheat anymore. (laughs) That would, from a PR perspective, be a pretty untenable position. Like they would surrender whatever sympathy points they have earned, I think, you know, like there's some sympathy now, but if you took it to this step where it's like, I'm going to go so far as to basically throw the game. (laughs) I, I don't think you would have really anyone on your side supporting that kind of action. Right. I think that one of the things that we probably don't talk about enough when we think about how the the PR battle sort of played out between the players and the owners last summer when they were trying to determine how they were going to return to play in the course of the pandemic was there were definitely people who are still like, just play. I don't care. Like, take less money. Rah. But I think that there were a fair number of people who found the player's position persuasive. And part of that was that they wanted to play more games, <laughs> yeah. right? Like they were on the side of let's play as many games as possible, please. Um, whereas at various times, the owners seem to be saying, let's play fewer games, please. And mm-hmm. so I think that you're right. Like the dynamic is such that they have to be conscious not only of how this plays in terms of its efficacy in negotiation with, with the league, but also in our understanding of them as people and players. And they don't want to be perceived as 
like stridently trying to cheat. I thought that the way that Garrett Cole talked about this yesterday after his start was both reasonable and I think probably the smart approach, which was to say like our our issue was with implementation. We're aligned with the commissioner's office. We just want to work with you, right? Please include players in your process because we're the ones who are gripping the ball. And that seems like a pretty reasonable perspective to have, especially for a guy who's you know, for better or worse, kind of become the face of this controversy along with Bauer. So I think that they they do need to be mindful of how they are presenting themselves, especially because the interests of players are not aligned completely on this. Right. Um, and they don't want to sow further division. And so, yeah, I think we are unlikely to see heavily gooped guys yes. trot out one after another. And we will not have a Spartacus moment. So mm-hmm. it's too bad. I agree. All right. Well, we've got the College World Series starting this weekend. So here's a question related to the college tournament. This is from Blake, who says, please settle a work debate. Meg talked about college tournaments starting on a recent episode. So hopefully this is somewhat timely. I live in Sioux City, Iowa, which is about an hour from Omaha, where the College World Series is played. A couple of my coworkers were raving about how nice it was to be able to go to the College World Series and watch such high-level baseball within a short driving distance. I said that it's funny people always say that about the College World Series when we could stay in Sioux City and see the Sioux City Explorers of the American Association, which is a higher level of baseball than college. To me, the College World Series is more about the fun atmosphere than blessing myself with a level of baseball I cannot find anywhere else. The Explorers are pretty good for the American Association. I said they would dominate teams in the College World Series because most Explorers players have played at a higher level than elite college players will start at. They looked at me like I was a space alien and said (laughs) I was crazy. Who are you taking in a best of seven series? A pretty good independent team like the Sioux City Explorers or an elite college team like Vanderbilt? I have the Explorers in five because Vandy's pitching is good enough to take a game. So I put this question to Eric Longenhagen, uh, our lead prospect analyst. And so anything that I'm about to say that sounds goofy is a result of me bumbling the translation of what he said. And anything that is smart is is, is doing so. I'll just (laughs) say that in case I goof something and he listens to this and is like, oh, Meg, you got that wrong. In talking to him, it sounds like this is this is a bit closer than Blake is maybe thinking it is, but there are some places on the roster where the dynamic he is describing would play out. So but if you take a team like Vanderbilt, I think that Blake is underestimating the the degree of quality of prospect that are sort of their top guys, right? The ability of someone like a lighter or a rocker to really take over a game is pretty pronounced. And some of their position players are um, sort of a better caliber of prospect than the guys who he is pointing out on the Explorers. But the place where he, I think, probably gets this right is when you go sort of further down, both on the position player side and on the pitching side, where college teams are going to be at a decided disadvantage in a scenario like this is when it comes to depth. So the mm-hmm. 10th best pitcher on Vanderbilt going up against guys who sort of topped out at double A you're probably going to get rocked by those guys. <laughs> like mm-hmm. those guys are going to are going to mess up that kid's day. And so right. I think that it is closer. I don't think that it would necessarily be they win one game and that's that, but when you start to get 
deeper into their, you know, their rotation, into their bullpens is where you're really going to start to see that. And there are going to be teams that make it to Omaha or who played in like the the regionals and the super regionals that a team like the Explorers would just like knock around. So I think that there is variability here. And perhaps like one of the places where we might think about this and sort of see the real difference is like the top college team in the country, Arkansas, right? When the Razorbacks were sort of facing down elimination in the super regionals, best team in the country, and they're relying on Kevin Cops. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they looked around and said, we do not have anyone else who we feel more comfortable with. And some of that is a testament to Cops's ability, but some of it is just the reality of depth on a college roster where you look at it and say, we'd rather this mostly reliever throw 112 pitches in an elimination game than than go to guys deeper into our rotation because of where the days where they were starting fell versus the regionals and the super regionals. So I think it is, based on my conversation with Eric, closer than what Blake is, is saying, but he is hitting upon something right, which is that when you get to I don't know. Like, let's look at the the Sioux City Explorers. I had this page open earlier, <laughs> and then I closed it like a real, like a just a the dumb dummy, you know. Uh, <laughs> but some of these guys had like really respectable double A career lines. If you go look yeah. at how they played in the minors, like they were good hitters, and so faced you know going up against like the underbelly of Vanderbilt's bullpen or like their sixth starter. Well, that's you know that's not the best, but. Also, like Lighter and Rocker can just take over a game. So that mm-hmm. that is my answer to this. But also, Ben, like, can we what would it take for you to get more excited about college <laughs> baseball? Because can I can I share an insight that I had? And I'm sure. I shared it with with your fellow I don't care about this comrade in arms, Craig Goldstein. So mm-hmm. like I was, you know, I watched I watched a lot of the the regionals and the super regionals. And um you know, we we talked to Craig at length about the ways that we can make the game sort of more dynamic, the underlying realities of the way that teams not only position their defenders, but the skill of those defenders and what it's really going to take to get more action on the field and not just have balls in play get gobbled up by well-positioned defenders. And I realized that like what you're describing is just college baseball, man. Yeah. It's just like college ball because sometimes they make these beautiful incredible defensive plays and you sit there and you're like that kid's a prospect and then sometimes they just boot balls and you're like oh oh boy and it's just you just you like college ball your platonic ideal of baseball is pro quality players playing college baseball (laughs) yeah i think we need to put ankle weights on them or like (laughs) really do make the gloves smaller maybe put holes in the gloves like more holes in the gloves i don't know man but like i think that what you really want is just college baseball yeah that is basically the case that michael bauman has made to be in his many fruitless attempts to persuade (laughs) me to care about college baseball is that it's just fun it's a brand of baseball that is a little different from major league baseball because of the caliber of competition not being quite as high. It's just a little less predictable and funky and strange stuff happens and there's no such thing as a routine play really. And I understand the appeal of that. One thing I do appreciate about it is that 
we talk about the biodiversity of Major League Baseball, right? And that's something you certainly get at that level where you see a lot of strange stuff that mostly doesn't make it to the majors because players have to specialize and maybe only certain skill sets tend to work at that level. So you see a lot of two-way players in college. You see just funky deliveries and weird-looking bodies and just all kinds of diversity when it comes to physical skills and appearance. So That is a selling point, but I don't know. I guess it's just that I only have so much time and attention to distribute, and Major League Baseball is more than enough to occupy the amount of time and attention that I have to lavish on baseball, basically. And like the players are the most physically skilled and talented, and maybe there are some downsides to that, but also there are a lot of upsides to that. So it's not college specifically that... I am disregarding. It is, uh, well, most other sports (laughs) I don't pay that close attention to and most lower levels of baseball just because there's a lot of baseball being played in the big leagues already. It's not like I've uh, exhausted all of the the games and the potential storylines there. (laughs) Like There's so much I miss and never see at that level that I'm trying to pay attention to. So it's partly that. I think it's it's not so much college baseball's problem. It's it's not you, it's me. The catching might make you crazy. So that's the oh, other yes. part of it. Like <laughs> and I don't mean like the framing is bad, although often the framing is bad. Like the actual <laughs> yeah. just receiving is sometimes you're like, but is there butter on your mitt? Anyway, <laughs> that's my plug for for college baseball. If you if folks have not been watching the the tournament, I just was so impressed with the quality of the broadcast for both the college world series and all of the college softball world series coverage like ESPN just did a really good job i know we like to poke fun at like the sunday night baseball broadcast on occasion but mm-hmm. it's just there's there's really good sports to be had and it's really exciting to see them being embraced by a major network for both baseball and softball because you know if you show people fun sports like they get excited about them and want to watch them again so i've just been very impressed and pleased by it it's a lot of fun so i hope people uh who maybe want to check out something new take some time as as we march to omaha to do that because it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. yeah another nice thing about college baseball is that Maybe because the stakes are a little lower, at least in some places, or there's a little less scrutiny or there's more turnover. You do get a lot of analytical experiments and innovation that happens there. So tactics and strategy and player development practices, you know, a lot of major league teams have of late been plucking coaches from college because they've really been on the cutting edge in a lot of cases. And a lot of college programs have these pitching labs and player development machines that were predating a lot of big league organizations making those moves and some strategies you'll see like the mid plate appearance pitching change which I talk about from time to time which doesn't happen in the majors does happen in college sometimes so that's just another example of just seeing a a broader range of possibilities maybe in college baseball than you see in the majors yeah it's pretty cool all right here is a question from Simon So I just finished attending my first live game in a year and a half, the result being a typical Angel 6-2 loss. It was great to be reminded of all the great experiences one can have in a ballpark, such as watching Shohei Otani leg out a hustle double and triple. Unfortunately, this question is not about those experiences. 
In the top of the eighth, the crowd sustained a fairly consistent wave for most of the inning. During this wave, Junior Guerra gave up a five-pitch walk to Jed Lowry and immediately followed it up by allowing a home run to Seth Brown. Once the wave ended, Guerra retired the next six batters he faced. This got me thinking, besides being annoying for fans, does the wave distract players, particularly pitchers and hitters, or is this just a classic version of the post-hoc ergo-propter hoc fallacy? Moreover, if you think the wave does have detrimental effects for on-field performance, how would you go about trying to measure it and establish causality? More broadly, has anyone tried to quantify the effect fans have on the game in some systematic way? Thanks for reading this perfectly useless question that nevertheless (laughs) deserves an answer. I mean, <laughs> like it definitely doesn't matter, right? No, I don't think it matters. I, I think I don't think it matters. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to account for any number of things. You'd have to account for the quality of the pitcher and the hitter for one thing. Yeah. If the result of the plate appearance is a walk, like you're also needing to account for the quality of the umpire and the framing talents of the catcher and I really don't think that f- most players really notice fans at all. I really don't. Like, I think that some amount of what we are measuring when we measure home field advantage probably is the energy in the park, right? I think that the the general, you know, you hear players talk all the time about how good it feels to have fans back in sort of a general way, but I don't really think it matters beyond mm-hmm. that. I'm sure that we are already accounting for some amount of this in in home field advantage, maybe. Like maybe it affects umpires. I don't know. But I really just don't think that it makes any difference. Yeah, you'd have to account for a lot of factors. You'd have to record exactly when the wave took place. Right. <laughs> and-, and and like <laughs> let's imagine for a moment that we thought the wave did matter, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we'll just take that as a given for the sake of this question. Do you think that it matters more for the pitcher, if the wave is going on beyond behind home plate as he is preparing to, well, maybe as he is preparing to release the ball or as he is actually releasing the ball, or do you think that it matters more for the hitter when like the wave is happening in the outfield? Like what is, what is our theory of wave efficacy right. even? You know what I mean? Like I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with this. Like, it's like, what do we think? Of, wh- who do we think it matters for, and when do we think it matters for them? I yes. think you'd have to have, you'd have to have a, you know, a unified theory of the wave before mm-hmm. you could possibly go about measuring whether or not it was having an impact on a given plate appearance. Right? Yeah, it could distract everyone equally, and the effects would cancel themselves out, and you'd never know. But right. I guess the closest comp would be basketball and fans trying to distract free throw shooters which there's been a lot of writing about and we've talked about on the podcast before I think a few years ago when Arizona State was doing the whole curtain of distraction thing and from what I've seen most of the studies seem to suggest that that doesn't work either that team free throw shooting percentages tend to be pretty similar on the road and at home and maybe it's worked in some cases for some amount of time and maybe there are certain patterns you could use that would be more distracting than others but on the whole it doesn't seem to be a big deal and that's a case where you would think it would be and that it would clearly affect only the team that fans were trying to affect and yet even that doesn't really seem to work so well so it really seems like players are pretty talented at tuning out distractions like that as they would have to be to get to that level (laughs) if there were 
players who were so distracted by heckles or fan noise, then they'd probably be filtered out pretty early on because that stuff is a staple even at lower levels of sports. So yeah, I just don't think it would make much of a difference. Mostly the wave isn't even in your field of vision most of the time because it's traveling all over the place. I guess the sound of it could be distracting, but really it's probably a leap in In order to test it, that's the other thing, is that how could you even get a sample big enough to (laughs) really, are you doing a wave constantly? And if you are, then is there even a distraction effect? Like the theoretical distraction comes from it being fairly rare. It's not the baseline. And so even if you did it once a game or something, and how long does it even happen? Half an inning, even that would be long. So what sort of samples are you using here to compare wave versus non-wave? So it would be difficult for any number of reasons. I think it is much more annoying to fans, yeah. <laughs> at least at least to fans <laughs> like me who don't like participating in things <laughs> and, and resent being pressured to participate in the wave. And I'm always the like wet blanket guy who's just sitting there when that happens <laughs> and refusing to stand. I refuse to be peer pressured into the wave. I mean, hey, if you have fun doing the wave, that's fine. I'm happy for you, but it's not my thing. I just think that like part of what's really lovely about baseball is that, and I think I maybe wrote a short relief about this for Baseball Prospectus way, way back in the day. Like one of the really great things about baseball is that you get to sit, right? Like I (laughs) greatly enjoy going to Seahawks games with my dad. Like it is just a really lovely thing that I get to do and I'm grateful to do it. But the social expectation at that is that you are going to stand for just really most of the time. Mm And uh, and you're going to scream for most of the time. So it's really quite exhausting as an afternoon. And the thing with baseball is like sometimes you stand up, but like the, the, the general expectation is that you will you will be at rest, right? You mm-hmm. will enjoy leisure. It will not be taxing on you. And so even setting aside the fact that it obscures your field of view, which I, is the part of it that I find the most irritating because look, some some folks know when to wave. And I don't mm-hmm. think you should ever wave, but like I, I understand that there are circumstances where it is, you know, it's a blowout. Like let's say you're at a Diamondbacks game, and mm-hmm. uh, and like people are gonna wave because it's like what what else are they gonna do? But like you you're sitting there, and sometimes people they do the wave at like inopportune moments. Wave mm-hmm. as an as a way to alleviate boredom in a game that is is long won by one side or the other, uh, but still marches toward its inevitable conclusion for a couple of more innings. Like that's one thing. Boredom wave I have some amount of tolerance for, even though I, like you, do not participate in it because I don't like being told to stand up when I'm comfortably <laughs> sitting. Yeah. This is why I, I like sometimes, like I don't wear my Apple watch just around the house because <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I don't need to be told to stand up. I know. No, like stop, leave me alone. Anyway, but when sometimes people will do a wave because they are trying to do what this question like assumes, which is influence the outcome on the field. And I would rather see the action, please. So mm-hmm. don't yeah. don't do the wave is is what I think about that. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that too. I, I always resent it, even if it's uh if I'm at a concert, if I'm at any kind of thing, if we're standing like 
once one row stands, then the row behind it has to stand. And if the first people in front would just not stand, then we could all continue to sit and be at rest and expend less energy. And that would be nice, I think. So, yes. And I think there's sort of a, a snobbery that comes into it where when fans are doing the wave, then like the hardcore fans will be like, oh, if you really love and understand baseball, you should not need to do the wave because you should just be zeroed in on every pitch. And these are just these casuals who are coming here and they think it's fun to do the wave. Why aren't they entertained by baseball? And I can acknowledge baseball is pretty boring sometimes. And so it is okay if you need to find some way to distract yourself. And that's why people are constantly looking at their phones or falling asleep or talking to their friends or whatever. And that's all fine. But the burden that you are imposing on those of us who do not want to stand or participate, that is the thing that makes the wave objectionable to me. Yeah, it's it's not for me. Mm -hmm. It's not for me. I just like it's so nice to be able to sit. All right. Here's a question from Scott about walks and the next generation. He says, one positive byproduct of the pandemic is that my six-year-old daughter is really into baseball. We're coming off her first season of Little League Baseball and watch or listen to games most evenings, usually the Mets. One thing I've noticed is that in addition to rooting for Grand Slams, as any self-respecting six-year-old should, she roots for walks much more often than hits. This has to be a function of the times and what she is seeing generally, and particularly with the Mets this year. Ouch. My question to you is, should I bother to quote-unquote correct her and encourage her to root for hits? Or is this what baseball is going to be like for the near to long future? <laughs> well, no one think of the children. First of all, what a what a delightful email to get. What a great yes. email. I'm so glad that you are getting to enjoy the game with your child. That is so lovely. What a great thing. So, like, let's start with that. That's just really heartwarming to me. I don't know. Like, I think the children... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I find this so lovely. I think that kids like develop an aesthetic really early and they root for stuff sometimes because it's sensical. Like as you're, as the question notes, like this is partly a result of the state of play, but also like, I don't know, kids spend like years obsessed with Paw Patrol and then they move on to other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So maybe the, maybe walks are her Peppa Pig mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, she'll, she'll start to root for 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 other stuff for for balls in play and and for that kind of aesthetic to have its place but i think that if you are blessed with a child who is like just enthusiastic about baseball you take whatever version of that you get and you yeah. just kind of run with it i mean like six is old enough to start answering questions and having a conversation about like what she's seeing on the field and what it means. But, and I say this as an aunt, not a parent. So like, you know, you can take it with the, the proper sort of positional adjustment, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I have found my interactions around the game with my nieces to best occur naturally, right? So if she asks you questions about what she's seeing, then I think you start to have a conversation with her about it. But I think that if she's jazzed about baseball, you just let her be jazzed. It's, you know, she's yeah. appreciating discernment and discipline. <laughs> right. <laughs> and a walk well earned. And I think that mm -hmm. that's fine. Yeah. 
I'd love to know more about how this happened and what it was that made her such a fan of walks. Has Moneyball been her bedtime reading or what exactly happened here or what her rationale is, why she finds walks so rewarding? But generally, we usually say there are a lot of different ways to enjoy baseball and uh, whatever floats your boat other than the wave is fine with us. So if this is what gets her into the game, like you, I would assume that she will grow out of this and that she will not be like a 40-year-old fan one day who's still rooting for walks over hits. But (laughs) hey, I mean, walks are good. OPP is life, as they say. So I guess she has internalized that early on. And that is good, (laughs) I guess. I wonder, like, is anything short of a Grand Slam disappointing to her then relative to walk? Like a single, a double, a triple? Is it all a letdown because it wasn't a walk? Or is it like, all right, that was good, I guess. It wasn't a walk, but it was pretty exciting. Does she understand that hits are generally better than walks just because you can advance runners more than one base? Like, I I don't know the answers to those questions. And if Scott wants to fill us in more and and share his daughter's perspective on this, I'd be interested in hearing about it. But I don't know. I guess like if it's I guess part of your role as a parent is to teach and and instruct. So if, if this is coming from like a failure to understand why hits are good and better right. than walks on the whole, then I, I guess you could share, hey, you know, on the whole, it's more beneficial to a team to have a hit because you could advance runners more. Like if she just doesn't know that, <laughs> then I guess it would be good to impart that piece of wisdom. But hey, if she just enjoys walks, then uh, I say let her love what she loves. Yeah, I think that that's right. And and perhaps Little League is the place where if there is sort of a a misunderstanding, you know, maybe that's the place that you you sort of do that course correction because yeah. you're already, you know, in the process of coaching, right? And she's playing the game, so she can <laughs> kind of see, you know, in a very practical way the benefit of one versus the other. But I think that uh gosh, I wonder what is her Little League stat line? Is I she, know I was going to say Yeah, like- is she just like an OBB <laughs> machine? If she refuses to swing because she only (laughs) wants to walk, I would say at that point, maybe, maybe you take her aside and say, this is not great for the team and just, you know, out of obligation to your teammates, maybe you should swing every once in a while. It's like the people who used to accuse Joey Votto of taking too many pitches and he should have been a run producer and he should have been driving in runners. And that was probably mostly bunk. But if uh, Scott's daughter is actually just taking all of the pitches because she loves walk so much, then yeah, maybe. Like, I don't know if uh, your opponents can exploit that at age six. I mean, maybe they're hitting off tees or something at that point anyway, in which case you'd have to swing or yeah. maybe it's coach pitch or I don't know what it is, but uh, probably you're not going to have an opposing pitcher on the mound who realizes, ah, Scott's daughter is not going to swing. I can just throw a bunch of strikes and, and strike her out every time. Do they even have strikeouts at that level? I don't know how Little League works at age six, but yeah, that's just kind of a basic, this is how baseball works and how runs are scored kind of conversation. Put her in against Jacob Dergram. Yeah, right. She'd never swing. Make much of a difference anyway. And yeah. she'd never swing, and mm-hmm. and then maybe it would go better for her. I don't know. Yeah, I'm re- referring to a piece that Devin Fink wrote for us at Fangraphs. So I'm not just sitting here being a weirdo about Jacob Degrom. Yes. I might also be being a weirdo, but not just that. 
right? That from a certain perspective, he is uh, so dominant with two strikes, right? That you theoretically might be better off not swinging, yeah. except for the fact that once he realized that you were never swinging, then he would that just, would be yeah, even it worse would, for you. It yeah. would be really bad. But the one time, yes, <laughs> that mm-hmm. one first time, uh, kid naturally enthusiastic about baseball. How cool. What a nice yeah. thing. That is nice. Yeah. Just yeah. be happy that your kid likes baseball at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he is, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's a question from Jesse, Patreon supporter. Are the Houston Astros a ship of Theseus? By all accounts, the biggest cheaters on the Astros during the period of cheating were essentially in order. Springer, Beltran, Gonzalez, Bregman, Guriel, Correa, Marisnik, Gaddis, McCann, White, Reddick, and Altuve. Of those, only Bregman, Correa, Guriel, and Altuve remain, and Altuve had the fewest bangs of almost anyone on the team despite having the most plate appearances. Nearly the entire pitching staff from that era is gone, too. Of course, Bregman, Correa, and Guriel are perhaps the three most notable cheaters outside of Springer, so maybe they have to depart before it's truly a ship of Theseus situation, but we are at roughly 20% of the original squad at this point. I can't speak for how much of the front office remains that was actually involved in the banging scheme, but I know some are still present along with a handful of dugout personnel. Are the Astros just destined to be the team that cheated forever and ever? How long do you think it will take until advanced baseball fans stop booing them? Casual fans? I know the Yankees are the Yankees are the Yankees, even though they are fairly far gone from the team that won 27 championships. One title in 20 years isn't aggressive, but booing them for their history remains. Branching off of this were the Chicago White Sox roundly booed by all fans in the aftermath of the Black Sox scandal. If so, is there any documentation of when it cooled off? As far as I can tell, no one is out there today booing the White Sox because of the actions of Arnold Gandal. Are there other teams out there that became pariahs after certain events and did they catch the ire of the whole baseball world to the extent of the Astros? So when will teams finally leave those poor Astros alone? Yeah. Well, I think that there are two things that determine the timeline here. And the first is the continued presence of the uh, on the roster of individual players who are on the team at the time of the banging scheme, regardless of their level of participation. Because I think even just one and you're going to you're going to boo that player mm-hmm. if you're on the road because we we see that individual players who hit you know big home runs against a franchise in a pivotal playoff moment will get booed even if the team that they hit that home run for isn't the team that they're on anymore mm-hmm. right so like i think that that does follow us like people just gosh i can't think of an example right now but you know people booed um, ryan braun right? people for, booed for ryan braun that's yeah. perfect example people booed ryan braun just forever and ever and ever so mm-hmm. i think that one thing that will dictate the time Timeline is the composition of the roster. And then I think the other thing that's going to dictate the, the timeline is what else happens in the broader ecosystem of baseball to put that particular scandal in context. I don't think that most people view sticky stuff the same way they view the banging scheme, but we know that other teams have been rumored to participate in illegal sign stealing. And there are all kinds of other scandals that might pop up along the way as we go here, because we just do a really great job (laughs) of avoiding those as a sport. So I think that the other part of it that will kind of affect how, how the team is perceived is whether they are still the most recent sort of 
team-specific sort of concentrated example of scandal. Mm -hmm. And if that stops being true, they probably will continue to get booed, but the ire is probably going to be directed elsewhere. But I think that some people are just stubborn. So the organization Mm -hmm. will always be synonymous in their mind with something that was taken from them. Like I think that it'll take, even if... Even if it were to come out tomorrow, and I I don't say this like knowing anything, just to be very, very clear, <laughs> I think that we should be careful about accusing people of cheating. <laughs> I'm referencing Twitter drama, which is immature. But I think that like if it were to come out tomorrow that the Dodgers had a equivalent level system in place to mm-hmm. garner signs, Dodgers fans would still boo the Astros at any opportunity because they feel like they had something taken from them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if the individuals involved are still present because the loss is still something that they feel. And so, you know, there's there's sort of going to be a, a normal distribution, right? And the tales are going to be, you know, I think fervent for a long time. But I think that most people will move on eventually once the, the roster has fully turned over. Mm-hmm. And I think the amount of time that passes between the revelations of the science stealing scandal and the number of years that we are back in the ballpark will have yes. a big impact on it too because you know if you look at the team now as this email says like very few members of that squad are still present on the roster and granted some of the most high profile players are but as a like in percentage terms it's quite small and so mm-hmm. but this is the first chance that anyone gets to like give them the business you know right, exactly yeah <laughs> so they're going to be enthusiastic about giving them that business but mm-hmm. next year maybe we don't care as much cuz we've had the chance to like get it out you know yeah exactly i think that's a big part of it i think if fans had had the opportunity to taunt them in person last year we probably wouldn't even still be talking about this now like i think maybe as soon as next season there will still be a smattering of boos for the team and certainly for individual players, yeah. but I don't think we'll be seeing routine headlines all over like, oh, the Astros went to this city they hadn't visited before and they got booed. Like, I think, yeah, fans will kind of get it out of their system. And it's sort of silly sometimes, like recently the Astros got booed big time in Boston and it's like, all right, your manager is Alex Cora. Yeah. <laughs> he came up with the system. Like, you know, Marwin Gonzalez is on that team. The Red Sox cheated too with sign stealing to a lesser degree, of yes. course, but still. And yeah. that kind of cheating was probably pretty pervasive. And the Astros were doing that after 2017 as well. So, you know, sometimes it's like a, kind of a glass houses situation to some extent, but I know that the Astros took it further and had an attitude about it and a right. response to it that made people even more mad and people didn't like the Astros already. So it was piling on in addition to that. So yeah, I think this will start to die down and eventually people will just lose interest or it'll feel like, all right, it's probably time to let this go. <laughs> but I did ask Jacob Pumranke from Sabre about the response to the Black Sox. He's a, a big Black Sox scholar. He's been on the show before to talk about them. And he says, that's a very good question. And unfortunately, there aren't many parallels here between the Black Sox and the Astros. For one simple reason, the Black Sox players were suspended right. so close to the end of the 1920 season, and then they never played in the majors again. 
that fans in other cities never had much of a chance to boo them. Right. There are some isolated cases of other players and occasionally some fans directing disparaging remarks toward the Black Sox in the summer and early fall, especially since rumors were swirling that they continued to throw more games during the 1920 regular season. Don Zeminda even found a few more suspected cases of 1920 fixed games in his new book, Double Plays and Double Crosses. But as soon as Eddie Seacott confessed to the grand jury on September 28th, there were only three games left in the season. The White Sox players were immediately suspended. The rest of the team played out the string, and then they virtually disappeared from the public eye as far as baseball was concerned. There was, however, a lot of public sympathy directed toward the clean White Sox players who were left to pick up the pieces once the 1921 season opened, in part because the team became so bad after losing all of their talented stars. So there wasn't this aura of defiance and count the rings like we see today from some Astros players who were on the team in 2017, which may be fueling some of the anger as is probably the fact, this is me editorializing here now, that there were no suspensions in the Astros case. And so fans feel like, okay, it's up to us to punish them because in part that was stated as like an explicit punishment, right? By the league when it said, oh, they will still be punished, just not officially because it'll be a stain on their reputation. So fans are trying to uphold that part of it too. But I do wonder just, you know, the the sticky stuff, as you mentioned, that doesn't seem to be as big a part of the conversation around that. Like, are we going to hold this against players or certain teams? Like, if a certain team, let's say, suddenly lost uh, 400 RPMs or something across the board next week, and that team had been successful recently and then stopped being successful, like, would that team be targeted? Would it have the same stain on its record? Would it be known as the Sticky Stuff team? Maybe it would be the Astros also, or maybe it would be some other team, but... That kind of thing or or like, you know, is this going to affect a player's Hall of Fame chances or something like that? I just I don't think it would in the same way, at least. I don't think it would be considered disqualifying the way that if you have some PD stain attached to your name, a lot of voters just say automatically no or especially if it's after testing was put in place. It's an automatic no for some people. Maybe with Carlos Beltran, if he had a hand in engineering the sign stealing scheme, maybe that will be held against. Against him potentially he's probably a borderline hall of fame guy anyway i would certainly vote for him based on his performance record but some people might hold the sign stealing against him so i don't see how sticky stuff could be considered a deal breaker in the same way especially because there are already so many hall of famers who are associated with and even celebrated for ball scuffing and spitballing and cheating by defacing the ball or putting something on it so what grounds would you have to keep someone out on that basis not that there aren't also hall of fame who use PEDs or stole signs, but if they did, it's not as big a part of their legacy as doctoring the ball is for some great pitchers. If you had like a borderline pitcher and it turned out that he suddenly became a lot less effective once the sticky stuff ban were put into place and he lost a lot of spin or something, then I could see it not so much just because he cheated, but because it might call into question his previous performance and was he only good because he was cheating. Right. I just don't think that we're approaching it that way. And Mm -hmm. part of this is that, like, I think that even fans who view the sticky stuff conversation discourse 
scandal. Like, I don't even know that I want to call it a scandal. <laughs> but, the, you know, even fans who are viewing that and, and find it really, really objectionable, right, or maybe putting it on sort of maybe not equal footing, but closer to equal footing with steroid use than we are, I think that there is an acknowledgement that this is like a widespread and sort of institutional yeah. issue. Um, right. And steroid use was, or the the continued prevalence of steroid use was an institutional issue also. So I don't mean to say that it isn't, but like, I think that we have learned from what that time looked like in our understanding of sort of individual culpability versus institutional culpability. And we're just looking at it differently than we did. It's mm-hmm. so like I said last time, like I think most people are just like refusing to start a moral panic about mm-hmm. this. We're like, we don't, it's not the way that we're, viewing this and so i don't imagine that it's going to impact the hall of fame chances of anyone even i would say i would be surprised if it did even if somebody gets popped and suspended after the ban goes into effect on monday you know or the the renewed enforcement like i just don't think people are gonna think about it the same way i don't know no, I don't think they would in the sense that like, oh, they're a cheater. And so we right. can't put them in because of that. I think it just might in the sense that you might discount their previous performance. Sure. If you thought that it was purely or largely right. a product of cheating, then you might say, oh, well, he wasn't good after that. And so right. he was really propped up by the sticky stuff. So, right. But I, I think it's just so pervasive that, right. I mean, if everyone was doing it, then how mad can you be at any particular player or team? Like no one's the face of it. I mean, I guess Bauer is kind of the face of it, but Bauer is considered by some a positive figure in the story because he brought attention to it. There isn't really anyone who is sort of to the degree that the Astros are associated with science dealing or that it was like so much more blatant than what everyone else was doing, which seems to be the case potentially with the Astros. So I I just... I don't think it's the same sort of story. No, I don't either. And and as we said, like, I don't expect that it's going to take someone of, you know, Garrett Cole's caliber and turn him into a bad pitcher, right? Like mm-hmm. he is still going to be, I would imagine, a very good pitcher. He just yeah. will have a little less spin on his four-seamer. Mm-hmm. And so the guys where it really might be what's making the difference in their ability to stay in the majors, they're not going to be in the Hall of Fame conversation anyway, right? Yeah. Those aren't the dudes that we're going to have to have this debate about. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yep. All right. Well, we can wrap up with Meet a Major Leaguer, so I will do a quick stat blast first. Okay. So that was a question about a ship of Theseus. This is also a question about a ship of Theseus, or in this case, a lineup of Theseus. This question comes from Chris, who says, The Twins have had a lot go wrong for them this season, but one of the most frustrating has been injuries. Eight of the nine players from their opening day starting lineup have been or are on the IL, and their current roster has very little in common with what they started with. This made me wonder... How many teams have fielded a lineup where it was completely different from their opening day lineup and none of the players matched? 
who had it happen the fastest? And like the ship of Theseus thought exercise, how much is this the same team? Now I have a follow-up based on that. What baseball team's opening day lineup contributed the least to a full season's success? Bonus points for who did it while still making the postseason. I will stop this email now before it spins off into another half a dozen stat blasts. So (laughs) the Twins, uh, they have been hard hit. I guess if you look at the baseball prospectus IL ledger, they actually don't really stand out in terms of days missed or wins above replacement player lost. So many teams have been hurt. They do have 10 guys on the IL as we record here on Thursday afternoon. They are maybe getting a little healthier. Kenta Maeda's back. Luisa Rice is back. Max Kepler's about to be back. Byron Buxton seems to be nearing a return. But they've also had some new injuries strike. Michael Pineda, Rob Snyder just went on the IL. Josh Donaldson and Andrelton Simmons left Wednesday's game with injuries. So it's not looking great there. Many other things have gone wrong for them, but it's true that There have been a a bunch of guys from that opening day lineup who were very quickly removed from their lineup. So I sent this to frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson, who ran all the numbers and really went above and beyond here in answering all of Chris's questions. So reading from Ryan's response here, it turns out that this seems much rarer than I thought. Only 166 times in MLB history going back to 1871 has a team run out a lineup where zero of the nine hitters played on opening day for that team. That is just 0.04% of the time. The majority of these come late in the season. 60% came after game 150 and 80% came after game 130. My instinct is that these are mostly September call-up lineups where they let a bunch of kids play since the team is out of contention. But there were nine times that a team ran out a no-overlap lineup before game 100, and he lists them here. I will put all of the data for this online for anyone who wants to look at all of the specifics. But the 1951 Chicago Cubs were close to the quickest June 22nd to June 24th. Their 56th, 57th, and 58th games, they had no overlap lineups. This is the second earliest ever to have one. Here's the opening day lineup and the reason for missing games 56 to 58. So Wayne Terwilliger, the second baseman, was traded to Brooklyn. Frank Baumholtz, right fielder, off days. Hank Sauer, left fielder, off days. Unknown, could find no mention of the cause. Bill Serena, third baseman, injury, fractured wrist, sliding into second. Andy Pafko, center fielder, was traded to Brooklyn. D. Fondi, first baseman, was sent down to AAA. Roy Smalley, shortstop, was out with an injury, an ankle fracture. Rube Walker, the catcher, was traded to Brooklyn. And Frank Hiller, the pitcher, was uh, just in the rotation. He just missed those games. So this was mainly caused by a June 15th blockbuster trade with the Dodgers. Johnny Schmitz, Rube Walker, Andy Pafko, and Wayne Terwilliger were traded by the Cubs to the Dodgers for Eddie Mixis, Bruce Edwards, Joe Halton, and Gene Hermansky. So that accounted for a lot of that turnover there. But this was not the earliest or weirdest no-overlap lineup. That would go to the 1912 Tigers, who on May 18th, their 29th game of the season, threw out quite the lineup. For this one, it was easier to explain who was in the lineup that day rather than who was missing. And this is a famous game, which we have talked about before. The Tigers lost 24-2. to And 
he passes along the reason for this, which uh, we, we have discussed in previous podcasts on May 18th, 1912. The Tigers players went on strike to protest the suspension of star center fielder Ty Cobb, who had gone into the stands on May 15th to attack a disabled fan who had been abusing him. Rather than forfeit the next game, the Tigers sent out a team of replacement players, mostly local college and sandlot players, but also including Tigers coaches Joe Sugden and 48-year-old Deacon McGuire. Manager Huey Jennings also entered the game as a pinch hitter. Starting pitcher Alan Travers gave up 24 runs on 26 hits in a complete game loss both American League records. So that's a pretty famous one. If you count that, 29 games into the season is the record. If not, 56 is. If we go by the Twins' achievement, only one player from the opening day roster remaining is much more common, but still not very. It's happened 1,296 times. That's 0.29% of games. And it's happened at least once in 109 of the 120 seasons since 1900 including every season since 1958, except the shortened 1994 and 2020 seasons. Again, this usually happens later in the season. 67.5% of the time it happened in game 130 or later, but has happened pretty early in the season as well. It has happened 39 times in a team's first 60 games and five times in a team's first 30 games. And the fastest time was the 1933 St. Louis Cardinals, April 30th, the 15th game of the season. Yeah, where the only player in both lineups was Hall of Famer Frankie Frisch. So that opening day 1933 Cardinals lineup, Sparky Adams, third baseman, traded to Cincinnati after eight games. George Watkins, right fielder, benched for three games. Frankie Frisch was in there at second base. Ripper Collins, first base, benched for 15 games. Joe Medwick, left field, benched for two games or a day off. Ernie Orsatti, center fielder, benched for 15 games. Jimmy Wilson, catcher, day off or unknown. Gordon Slade, shortstop, replaced by Pepper Martin after three games. And Dizzy Dean, the pitcher, was off that day. And Ryan even dug into the archives here, found a contemporary news article from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that may explain the rationale behind this one. It says, four new men to be in Card's new lineup today. When a shakeup is considered necessary, Charles E. Street, manager of the Cardinals, doesn't believe in halfway measures. The Cardinals suffered their eighth defeat in 13 games at Pittsburgh today, and tonight, Sergeant Gabby announced that he would use an entirely new outfield and a new first baseman in tomorrow's doubleheader with the Cubs. Ray Pepper will replace Joe Medwick in left field. Ethan Allen will take Ernie Orsatti's place in center, and Steele Crabtree will replace Watkins and right. Pat Crawford will take over the first base job from Jimmy Collins, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently in 1933, a 5-8 stretch meant you benched everyone. <laughs> so wow. maybe an overreaction. But Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Yeah. How did that team end up doing? I guess they they ended up uh, at 82-71, and 71, which was oh my fifth God. in the National League. So I don't know. Maybe it didn't really light a fire under them, but they did better than 5-8 and eight at least. So... Finally, as far as which teams got least from the players on their opening day lineup, the most satisfying approach would likely be some kind of war comparison between the players on the opening day roster and the team as a whole. That data is available, but it would be another pretty messy merging project. So in lieu of that, I used a proxy measure, the percentage of a team's player games that come from the opening day roster. For reference, the average team since 1871 has 64% of their player games come from the opening day lineup. That's a fun fact. This used to be much higher, 83.7% before 1900, but it has been pretty consistent since the turn of the century, and it's been 63.2% in the last decade. The highest percentages are almost all from the 1800s, when I guess they just only had so many players and didn't really have guys to sub in. 
but the highest five since 1900 are as follows. The 2014 Kansas City Royals, 85.12. The 1976 Oakland A's, 85.99. 1926 Cleveland, 86.0. 2007 Seattle, oh, the Mariners, 87.52. And 1975 Oakland again, 89.99. Here's the opening day lineup for that A's team. Second, Burt Campanaris sighting in his many stat blasts and how many games (laughs) they played that year. It was Bill North, Burt Campanaris, Sal Bando, Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy, Billy Williams, Gene Tennis, Claudel Washington, and Phil Garner. The lowest five all-time are the 1932 Red Sox, 34.05%, 1961 Angels, 33.4%, 46 Brooklyn Dodgers, 30.93%, 1952 Red Sox, 30.16%, and 1952 Detroit Tigers, 29.06% of their player wow. games came from their opening day players. The 1952 Tigers were a mess, a 50-104 and 104 record that year. They traded their opening day starting pitcher, Dizzy Trout, in May, the only two legitimately good hitters on their team, Vic Wirtz and Jerry Pretty, played 85 and 75 games respectively due to injury. No other opening day starter had more than 60 games. So, oh, my God. <laughs> that's uh, not what you want. So as of this writing, this was five days ago when Ryan sent all of these stats to us. Through 63 games, the 2021 Twins had gotten 323 player games from their opening day starters, or 56.9%. Really, though, this isn't a fair comparison since the Twins and AL team started on the road in Milwaukee, and so their ninth batter was Kenta Maeda, who to date had not batted in another game. If we include the ninth batter from their first AL game, Nelson Cruz, it actually goes up to 65.4%, which is above average, so perhaps not as bad as Chris would have thought, but... Thank you very much for all of that info, Ryan. That wow. was extremely in-depth, and uh, I bow before your sequel skills. Just imagine being the one guy who's like, I guess I'm doing this the whole year. Like, who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> nice to meet you. You'll probably yeah. not be here very long if recent history is any indication, but let's yes. see what we can manage today. <laughs> All right. Well, we wish better health to the twins. So let's end with Meet a Major Leaker. Yeah. Meet a Major Leaker. I am very eager to meet this nascent Major Leaker. It's the thrilling debut of somebody new. Let's meet this mysterious Major Leaker. So my major leaguer is Dylan Thomas, who is Mm -hmm. not a poet, but (laughs) does inspire a lot of good puns. And Thomas is is currently in the Mariners organization. He made his debut with Seattle. And I think that he embodies the spirit of this exercise. It took him 10 years to reach the major league. So he was a fourth round selection by the Rockies in the 2011 draft and kind of bounced around in the the minor league system there and then elected free agency in 2017, having obviously never debuted and didn't find work. So he went to the American Association. Um, he, mm. he signed with the Texas Airhogs and he was the player of the month for them. 
at one point in July, and he was named an American Association All-Star, and then sort of latched on with the with the Brewers and stayed in the minors, was with Oakland for a little while, and then signed a minor league contract with Seattle in January of this year, and was originally assigned to Tacoma. And now I'm going to read a bunch of quotes because when I saw his post game after his debut, it made me teary. (laughs) And so I wanted to talk about him because I think that like a lot of guys kind of stick around for a long time like he did and they never make the majors. And I think Mm -hmm. that whether they do or not, it's useful to remember that like that kind of a persistence and time in in pro ball especially when you're making the kind of money you do in the minor leagues and you're going through the grind of that and not knowing if it will ever pay off is often a family affair and that's what thomas pointed to here so i am going to be reading now from daniel kramer at mlb.com story about his debut Mm -hmm. so he said In this story, the jitters began pregame when Seattle began infield practice and 11th year Mariner Kyle Seeger turned to Thomas, ensuring his teammates were within earshot and said, Mr. Thomas, this is a big day for you. And it continued into the postgame celebration along the Comerica Park first baseline. Thomas hit a game winning RBI. So his his debut was sort of idyllic (laughs) where Thomas met his family that trekked to Detroit, including his four-year-old daughter, whose reaction to his call-up was seemingly straight out of a Hollywood script. When he embraced his girlfriend to relay the news after a phone call with Mariners director of player development, Andy McKay, a teary Thomas caught his daughter off guard. She asked why he was crying. When he told her, why Thomas's daughter beamed with a wide grin, then erupted around the house shouting, Daddy is a big leaguer. And after the game, Thomas was, of course, asked about, you know, the achievement of making the big leagues and what it was like for him. And he said, it was a family affair to get here, Thomas said, tears beginning to emerge from his eyes. I couldn't be sitting where I am right now without both my mom, my dad, my sister, just everybody in my family. They've been the ones that have kept me going all these years. And I'm so grateful to have had that support system. So his his time in the majors so far has been brief. He played two games for Seattle before being optioned back to Tacoma. But it's really easy to forget these guys. And it's really easy to forget the sacrifices that their families make in order to keep them in the game and help support them as they go up the rungs and make pit stops in independent ball and then come back to affiliated ball. And uh, I just think that it's really nice. And whether they stick for a long time or not, that's work and dedication that should be recognized. And I wish it was easier for folks along the way, but I'm grateful that families kind of help their loved ones out and make it possible because otherwise we'd have a lot less cool stories, a lot fewer cool stories. Oh, I'm a terrible editor. (laughs) And so that's Dylan Thomas. And I would also say, be creative in your Dylan Thomas puns, pals. (laughs) There are Mm -hmm. a lot of poems out there. Go read some new stuff and then use that on Twitter. You'll be funny and you'll feel so clever. (laughs) Yeah, I cannot get enough of call-up stories. It's it's a genre where they follow sort of a standard template often, but I just love hearing players describe when they get that call, which is inevitably one of the best moments of most of their lives. So that and the Major League debuts stories. Even if the playing experience doesn't go quite as well, (laughs) I think that moment of euphoria when you find out that you are a major leaker, that is pretty special. So that's a, a nice thing about this segment is that we get to consume those stories and share them with everyone. So 
My meet a major leaguer contribution will be a bit different today. My plan was to go with Tigers pitcher Bo Burrows, who was called up for this season on Saturday and made his season debut, got torched, puked on the mound multiple <gasps> times, and immediately got demoted to AAA Toledo. Wait a minute. Was, <laughs> How have I not heard about this? I am shocked that I am you were not notified the, about this. Yeah, There's... the fact that this escaped my mentions, I don't know yes. if I'm disappointed or if I have renewed faith in humanity. There were bodily substances spewed very visibly and publicly. You can wow. watch the video if no, you care thank to. You. <laughs> he did throw up, and it seemed like maybe it was because of the heat. Yeah. He was uh, feeling the ill effects, and he was pulled from the game after that. And oh. he threw like 50 pitches in an inning in two thirds, and it just did not go great. Oh. He gave up four runs, and to add nausea to injury, he <laughs> hurled in more than one way. So oh. the combination of, of that and then immediately getting demoted, it's like yeah, that's just, rough. you know, one of the most ignominious debuts you could imagine. The problem is, or at least the problem for me as I was preparing for this segment, is that that was not his Major League debut. (laughs) That was his season debut, but he actually Uh... debuted last year, unbeknownst to me, because we were not doing the segment and I was not tracking everyone who made his Major League debut. But he did pitch in five games last year, so ineligible. Therefore, I was forced to pivot, and we got an email just this morning from Kevin, Patreon supporter, which was well-timed in this case. He said, it occurred to me after your episode on the Negro League stats being integrated into baseball reference that you could expand your delightful meet a major leaguer segment to occasionally include a Negro Leagues player who is now part of the official record, just an idea. And that is a good idea. I will do that today, at least. And I am going to go with a major leaguer who hopefully you have heard of or met previously, but I think deserves all the attention he can get. And that's Bullet Rogan, the great right-handed pitcher and hitter for the Kansas City Monarchs of the 1920s. This week has been a Bullet Rogan appreciation week, I think, because of the baseball reference move to reclassify those stats as major leagues. Suddenly everyone has been looking at leaderboards and looking at the new Negro Leagues stats hub on the site. And everyone has suddenly been saying, whoa, Bullet Rogan, (laughs) check out this guy. And I just, I saw a bunch of tweets that were like, holy crap, Bullet Rogan. (laughs) And again, I think that's one of the benefits of of baseball reference doing that is that he's not an unknown player. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. a Hall of Famer, but he is not quite as famous as, you know, your Josh Gibsons and Satchel Pages. And so if you haven't looked at the stats before, Bullet Rogan may have escaped your notice or at least the amount of notice that he should get. And it seems like he is getting it now. And this is well-timed because Shohei Otani is making his 10th start of the season on Thursday or will have done so by the time you are hearing this against a new major leaguer, by the way, Tigers prospect Matt Manning. That's an exciting matchup. but. Yeah. That is Otani's 10th start of the season. He is one of only two major leaguers who have ever gotten to double digits in starts on the mound and home runs and stolen bases as a position player in the same season. And he has done that twice now. He did it in 2018 too. But the only other player ever to do it is Bullet Broken in 1922. 
So between that and between the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of a, a famous game in Bullet Rogan's career where he went head-to-head on June 12th, 1921 against Cincinnati's Jose LeBlanc, who was kind of the other best pitcher in the Negro Leagues at the time, and that was just written up by Sabre's Game Recap Project. So all sorts of things are coming up Bullet Rogan right now, and I can't do full justice to him in this segment. We've devoted full episodes or interviews in the past to Oscar Charleston and to Martin DeHigo, and maybe Bullet Rogan should get that treatment at some point too. Yeah. But for now, I will direct everyone to the baseball reference pages, admire the stats. He stands out on the baseball reference hub because he has the most war of any player accumulated in the Negro Leagues. So, you know, there were players who spanned the Negro Leagues and the American National Leagues, Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, who had more war. But Bullet Rogan had the most war of any player exclusively in the Negro Leagues and by like 10 war over Willie Wells. And he did it because he was fantastic as both a hitter and a pitcher. And just to try to put this into perspective, in his five-year peak, 1921 to 25, that's his age 27 through 31 seasons, the Monarchs played 424 league games that are included at Baseball Reference, and that should be pretty close to their total because the data coverage for the 1920s is pretty good. So 424 games over that five-year period. Bullet Rogan, combining his batting and pitching war, was worth 39.8 wins above replacement. Now, if I've done the math correctly, that means that per 162 team games, Bullet Rogan was worth 15.2 war over that period. Or if we want to go with the 154 game schedules that AL and NL teams were playing at the time, that would be 14.5 war per 154 games. The best single season war ever by a major leaguer, according to Baseball Reference, is Babe Ruth's 14.2 in 1923. So relative to the Negro National League replacement level, Ruth's contemporary Bullet Rogan was playing better than Peak Ruth, better than anyone has ever played. He just was an incredible two-way player. The stats are eye-popping on both sides, really. His ERA Plus career is 161. His OPS Plus career is 152. (laughs) So he was 50 to 60% better at both of those things at the same time. And there just are not enough superlatives to some of the other fun facts I've seen. Jeremy Frank on Twitter, the list of players with 50-plus career wins and 50-plus career home runs. It's Cy Seymour, Babe Ruth, and Bullet Rogan. And a tweet from at Brave Stats, uh, effectively wild listener, had the list of players with uh, at least 120 career OPS plus and 120 career ERA plus with at least 500 plate appearances and 200 innings pitched. Charlie Ferguson, Bob Carruthers, Babe Ruth, Bullet Rogan, Leon Day, and Martin DeHigo. DeHigo and Rogan are the only two who have at least a 130 OPS plus in both of those categories. And Rogan is the only one who has uh, 150 or, or better, or even 140 or better in both of those categories. So really kind of incredible. And I'll just a uh, brief summary. He didn't make his debut until he was almost 27 in 1920, which is uh, the beginning of the Negro Leagues. So he was already well into his uh, career in life by the time he got there, which makes it even more impressive. He was born in 1893, and he was in the Army for a while before he was in the Negro Leagues, and he played on a, a famous team in the military, which was called the 
25th Infantry Wreckers uh, in the the Buffalo Soldiers Regiment. The Wreckers were a, a really skilled team in the military at that time, and a lot of their players went on to form the core of the Monarchs teams of the 1920s. And so he excelled there and served in the Philippines and was just in the Army for years before he made his Negro Leagues debut. And he could do it all. And, and the quotes, the testimonials are really impressive. William Big C. Johnson, one of his teammates in the Army, said Oscar Charleston was everything, but Rogan was more. Rogan could do everything, everywhere. Satchel Page famously said in his unique diction, he was the onlyest pitcher I ever saw, I mm. ever heard of in my life, was pitching and hitting in the cleanup place because he would often bat cleanup when he was not pitching. According to Rogan's longtime catcher, Frank Duncan, if you had to choose between Rogan and Page, you'd pick Rogan because he could hit. The pitching, you'd as soon have Satchel as Rogan understand, but Rogan's hitting was so terrific. Get my point? I do. And Casey Stengel also called Rogan one of the best, if not the best, pitcher that ever lived. And the tributes go on and on. And he was actually 5'7", which was not big even then, and yet he was the hardest-throwing pitcher, it seems like, probably in the Negro Leagues. He, unusually for the time, often pitched without a windup and pitched from the stretch and had a sidearm delivery sometimes, so you wouldn't think he could get the zip on the ball that he did, but he really could bring it. And he also had a, a variety of other pitches, and he threw uh, a curve and a spitball and a palm ball and a fork ball, but the fastball was where his nickname, Bullet, came from. He's known as Bullet Joe also. He, he went by Joe sometimes, but just to avoid the confusion with other Joes Rogan, <laughs> I am calling him Bullet Rogan in the segment. His given name was Charles Wilbur Rogan. But really, he did it all. He played every position except catcher and was a, a great defensive center fielder by all accounts, too. Buck O'Neill said, you saw Ernie Banks hit in his prime. Then you saw Rogan. Frank Duncan, the catcher I mentioned already, who caught both Page and Duncan, said Satchel was easier to catch. He could throw it in a court cup. But Rogan was all over the plate, high, low, inside, outside. He'd walked five to six men, but he didn't give up many runs. Bullet had a little more steam on the ball than Page, and he had a better breaking curve. The batters thought it was a fastball heading for them, and they would jump back from the plate, and all of a sudden, it would break sharply for a strike. I would rank him with today's best. I have never seen a pitcher like him, and I have caught some of the best pitchers in the business. Apparently, he was uh, sort of effectively wild. Another Monarchs teammate, George Carr, said Rogan was the greatest pitcher that ever threw a ball. He had not only an arm to pitch with, but a head to think with. Rogan was a smart pitcher with a wonderful memory. Once Rogan pitched to a batter, he never forgot that batter's weaknesses and strong points. And, and here's maybe even more impressive, he also managed and was a great, or at least a, a very successful manager. So... He is uh, very close to the top of the all-time leaders for winning percentage as a pitcher at Baseball Reference now. At 698, he is fourth. That is just ahead of Clayton Kershaw. But here's the amazing thing. His 698 winning percentage as a pitcher is the same as his 698 winning percentage as a manager, which is the best all time. <laughs> and he wow. managed from 1926 to 1930. He was also playing 
for much of that time. So he was a player manager and apparently he was like a, a strict disciplinarian as a manager at first, which is not surprising maybe given his military background and wasn't the best teacher at first because he was like one of these great players who's like, just do what I do and no one else can. Uh, but over time, apparently he softened up a bit and became a better instructor and was extremely successful as a manager and then went on to be a major league umpire as well in the Negro League. So two-way player who was also a manager and umpire in the majors, just an incredible career. After his time in the Negro Leagues, he went on to work in the post office for many years. He died in 1967 at age 73, and he was inducted into the hall in 1998, which is almost 30 years after Page got in, so it took a while. So I'm, I'm glad that people are appreciating him now. You can see in Stathead, he has the most innings pitched of any major leaguer with an ERA of 160 or higher, 1,500 innings. He actually has the most innings pitched with an ERA plus higher than Clayton Kershaw, who is uh, currently at 156. So just amazing at everything. 2.65 career ERA. And as a hitter, his uh, slash line was 338, 413, 521 in almost 2,500 plate appearances. So just, you know, not enough superlatives really to yeah. describe Bullet Broken. Yeah. I... <laughs> what could I even say except that I'm so glad that we're going to, that we have sort of an easy to access uh, statistical yeah. record that we can use as a jumping off point to discuss guys who should have been well known to baseball fans and analysts a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Really exactly. cool. Yeah. Really cool. All right. Well, I suppose we can end there. I've been thinking of Scott's walks loving daughter all the time since we've talked yeah. about her. Maybe next week will be big for her, right? Because if they take away the sticky stuff and guys start nibbling, maybe we'll see more walks and maybe. it'll be the golden age for Scott's daughter. So I'm happy that she'll be happy if that happens. Yeah. And it's like, are there particular kinds of plate appearances that end in walks that she really likes? Like, is it the long battle yeah. that then ends with a free pass where she's like, ha triumph. Does she want the count to go full and you work yeah. the walk or does she just want the four pitch, pitch walk? Just, yeah. just, let's get to it. Get that walk in there. Yeah. I don't wow. know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. That will do it. Okay, by the way, I should mention that Meg informed me that Fangrass is looking to add Negro League stats as well. That's apparently in the process of being worked out, so one day we will be able to enjoy the work of Bullet Rogan on that website as well. In the meantime, we can enjoy the work of the modern-day Rogan, Shohei Otani, who had another good two-way game on Thursday, walked twice for Scott's daughter, I hope she was watching, and also pitched six strong innings against Detroit. I just never tire of watching this man. I know you all know that, but my heart feels so full after... After each of these outings, I must share it with the world. I've just never enjoyed following an athlete the way I enjoy Otani, both the incredible athlete he is and the person he seems to be watching from afar. We are very lucky to be watching what he's doing. And Meg and I are lucky that some of you support us on Patreon, which we are grateful for. You can support Effectively Wild there by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Matt Bougie, 
Articuno Johnson, John Topp, Jacob Carl, and Greg Scarfo. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. Happy first federal holiday of Juneteenth. Happy 33rd to Jacob deGrom. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Why don't you walk away? Why don't you walk away?